This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette! Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people upon whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR and the Gadigal people from whose land we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. It's hard to know what this show is about. In a way, it's a requiem for the billions of dead animals and trees last summer. It's in honour of the growing number of people who realise they are connected to the land. They need the park. They grow vegetables. I notice the magpie. As our ecologist tonight says, of listening to her, she was part of, so many people want a simpler life. One thing that really struck me that came out of the listening campaign was people all collectively, or the vast majority of people, mentioning they're wanting to return back to simpler times and return back to nature. That was Dr Keita Ashman. The bush needs our help to restore all the connections it used to be able to make on its own. Parts of it have been sterilised by fire, and this could be the same in Siberia, in California and in the Amazon. But to slow down the havoc that climate change is causing, we need to manage the land differently. After the ecologist, we'll hear from a water scientist and catchment manager who has now taken on the job of CEO at Beyond Zero Emissions. That's Chris Arnott. And lastly, to make it all happen, engineer and community power leader Nikki Ison speaks about the nuts and bolts of, the, of turbocharging, something called renewable energy industry precincts. They're like hubs and clusters where industries will gather using the renewable energy available. She talks about manufacturing in the food industry. Should they use existing heat pump electricity or wait for greener hydrogen? It might be a bit technical, but it's really the brave vision we need to promote. Michael Lord and Simon Curry also speak at the Beyond Zero Emissions discussion group. For example, did you know that there is already 160 gigawatts of wind, solar and battery projects in the planning stages. So they have a big vision that you may not hear in the mainstream media, but it's something that you can also offer to other people. Having heard it, you offer it to somebody else because this is really happening. If you visualise the map of Australia, these places all have deep ports, rail and road connections, plus a technically skilled workforce and reliable power supply. Just think of the map. Gladstone in Queensland, Port Kembla and Newcastle in New South Wales, Portland in Victoria, Bell Bay in Tasmania, Wyala in South Australia, Quanana in Western Australia. With renewable energy industrial precincts, these places would attract in industries like, here's the list, aluminium smelters, green steel, green hydrogen, recycling and data centres. I know some of you might be recoiling. What about the simple life? But 
I'm bringing you these voices because they all have a vivid awareness of what climate change is doing and what Australia realistically can contribute to restore and rebuild. Bushfire regeneration is still an urgent topic and as we enjoy a glorious spring and summer, it's possible to think that nature will just repair the damage of the last bushfires by itself. With me is an ecologist and expert in threatened species and climate adaptation. She's Dr. Keita Ashman from the World Wildlife Fund. So welcome, Keita. As an ecologist, I think your understanding of what's happening here in the last bushfires will be different than mine. But what do you see? Yeah, this last bushfire season was unprecedented and we saw much more bush burn than we would have in normal bushfire years. And not only did we see more bush burn, we saw bush burn at higher intensities, uh, which in a lot of places has destroyed a lot of the seed bank and a lot of the bush's natural ability to regenerate. And so normally where we'd see under a normal bushfire season, we'd see areas that burn and then regenerate quite fast after burning because, as we all know, the Australian bush needs to burn every so often. But this season, we're seeing areas that are blackened, seed bank is destroyed, and we're seeing areas that are not coming back. And if they are coming back, they're coming back with huge amounts of weeds. And so unlike other years, this this is a year where we really need to pull together to kind of help to recover the bush What do fire-affected landscapes need to promote good growth and not get choked with weeds? I mean, is there a lot of weeding going on now, for example? Uh, I think there's there's definitely a bit of weeding going on, but it is a slippery slope between, you know, where you inject your efforts and and weeding is hugely labour-intensive. What we really need is, you know, a change in our business-as-usual fire practices, a change in our business-as-usual emissions and kind of climate practices. On the ground, though, sowing seeds, seed bombing, getting native seed back into the soil and back able to regenerate is probably the key thing. And then, I guess, more broadly, not on the ground, protecting what we have left is more important now than ever. You know, there's all the places that burnt patchily, there are little pockets that are crucial now for threatened species and crucial for the recovery of a lot of these landscapes. And so protecting those unburnt patches is is super important. Can you tell me a bit more about one of those pockets and what sort of species you're looking at? Yeah, so, I mean, along the East Coast, a lot burnt, but in places throughout East Gippsland, for example, there's a mosaic of burn. So we had areas that burnt, you know, high severity and were basically completely cooked. And then other areas that burnt at lower severity or areas where fires came through and there's patchy little remnants. And they might be remnants of rainforests that are in gullies and, and streamlines where it's wetter and so they're less likely to burn. And the types of species you might see, are, you know, mountain ash, tree ferns, all of those wetter kind of you know, cooler climate species, but it it really varies because such a huge area burnt, there'll be pockets within that total fire envelope all up the east coast where where things didn't burn or burnt at lower severity that, you know, are really crucial to protect now. On this program, we've talked before to people in Landcare Australia and WIRES, and apparently they have a collaboration where Landcare gets their local groups to restore the vegetation that the animals need and then wires comes back with the 
animals that they've protected and saved to, you know, repopulate those areas. And I think they're restoring the habitat, but they got a lot of money out of sympathy. Wires got a lot of money apparently during the bushfires, you know, international money just poured into wires. It was a well-known fund and they've shared it with Landcare. But your organisation is World Wildlife Fund and you're launching a $1 million project to find innovative solutions and I wonder what are you hoping for? We're basically looking for solutions that are going to push boundaries and give us some really out-of-the-box solutions and thinking. So the types of uh, solutions, the problems that we're facing are things like fire risk management, regenerative use of landscapes, species recovery and building resilience both ecologically but also socially in the face of climate change. And so we're looking for solutions that really address that and kind of innovate on the ways that we normally think about that. So some examples might be things like um, innovative business models for regenerative agriculture, stuff that incentivizes local landholders to protect and restore the habitat on their land. We're also hoping to get some solutions that explore new ways of restoring habitat. So using new technologies, things like drones for seeding or thermal imaging and detection dogs for koalas, kind of new ways for looking at species and restoring species habitat. But other kind of of out-of-the-box things might be testing and scaling new finance models and things that find new ways to value ecosystem services um, on land. So yeah, anything that's kind of giving us a new approach to restoration and conservation. Yeah, well, this program is very focused on climate action and we've Mm. talked a lot before about um, carbon sequestration and people can actually evaluate a forest in terms of its carbon content. But so far, I don't think we've we've really turbocharged that. In, In New South Wales, we've got all these land clearing, you know, weak laws that permit a lot of land clearing to be going on. Even logging down there, I know on the south coast of New South Wales, is logging going on right there with those delicate little patches are trying That's to correct, yeah. survive. What about carbon sequestration type programs? Are you focused on, on that too? Yeah, I think there's a lot in the regenerative agriculture space that we're yet to explore. So some of the people in within WWF are looking at new ways to come up with resources, things like regenerative beef and um, grains and other things like that. And so ways that we can get what we need resource-wise out of the land, but also maintain the land and sequester carbon and things like that through woody vegetation. I think there's a lot still to be had, a a lot of gain to be had by valuing what's left on the land. And, and, you know, maybe it's not necessarily having agriculture on your property. Maybe it's going, I've got a block of bush and X percentage of it is woody vegetation and you can calculate how much carbon is being stored in that bush each year and maybe it's carbon credits or things like that on people's property but definitely incentivizing people to love the bush and and keep it on their property rather than clearing it and developing it is is going to be a huge step in the right direction for us from a climate perspective. Yeah, well, yesterday the headline um, up here was in New South Wales, koalas lose out under new bill in New South Wales. And there was a bit of a stoush in our parliament about that. But eventually the bill now still permits landowners to clear koala habitat. And 
I wonder what incentives can you give to farmers to create these sort of safe havens, example for koalas or wildlife corridors. I've spoken before to someone about bats and they need a, a corridor of fruiting type of trees for them to fly down and pollinate more. Really, in, in the world that we live in, the types of incentives that make the most sense are types of monetary incentives. But it gets quite tricky because who then funds that incentive? Uh, you know, is it a federal government um, initiative? Is it something that NGOs like WWF pay for? But, you know, these kinds of things can be hugely expensive and they're, they're definitely needed. But I think this type of challenge, the Regenerate Australia challenge, is trying to crack that question um, to look at new finance models and look at new ways that we can value ecosystem services and that we can either, you know, provide monetary incentives for people to keep bush on their land or, or other types of incentives. Maybe it's something to do with, you know, tax-related offsets and, you know, carbon-related offsets that end up some kind of benefit for landholders. But... Unfortunately, we, you know, we don't have an easy fix at this point. And so launching these kinds of challenges is really trying to bring to get, together the best thinkers to try to really work out how we're going to do that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, you're, a, a, you know, an international organisation. So I think there'd be a lot of expertise coming in from around the world, really, on this. A lot of people, I mean, the fires are burning from Siberia to California. And, you know, a lot of people have a common experience now of this and relating it to droughts and climate change before that. So maybe the uh, we're going to make a great leap in consciousness. But I'm going to recommend your fire challenge to a Ewan man I met. And listeners might remember I spoke to him in Bega, and he wanted public lands to be managed by trained local and Indigenous people. And he was an expert in cultural burning. And he gave me such a marvellous interview describing how it works. It sounds like quite a slow, careful process and you need to be trained in it. It's not something you just do quickly or one-off. And I wondered how open are you to First Nations experts being paid to manage the land in tune with what climate change is doing to it right now? Yeah, we, we are very, very supportive of First Nations peoples managing country and managing their land. You know, Indigenous rangers and fire ecologists across a lot of Australia have been advocating for more effective management of country for many, many years. But, you know, this kind of advice to this point hasn't really been taken up and at least not at scale. So, you know, while we've seen a slow rise in numbers of Indigenous rangers in recent years, the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women with secure employment working on country is still way too low. And so, you know, this is a key thing that I think going forward ecologically and, you know, from a climate perspective really needs to be corrected. And we're very, very keen to support this and to support, you know, new ways of thinking about getting traditional owners on country and, and, and doing what needs to be done to really nurture their land but also you know to create a really positive impact going forward with you know future more severe and intense fire seasons yeah well i'm hoping that some listeners to this show in sydney or melbourne will have a friend or know someone who's exactly the kind of innovator you're thinking of like the man i interviewed in bega I would recommend it to him. But if listeners want to recommend this, it's called Bushfire Regen Challenge, how, how do they go about it? 
Firstly, we're looking for startups, entrepreneurs, um, social impact ventures, anyone really who's committed to helping Australia recover from the bushfires um, and build a you know, stronger, fairer, more resilient economy. So anyone really with a project and a plan can enter as long as your project kind of fits some of the criteria. And that's primarily around recovering the bush, recovering species and, you know, new ways of thinking about doing that. And in terms of, you know, how to do it, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's just a matter of going to our WWF Australia website or the Impactio Global website, which is impactio.global, and you can register and sign up and you can, there's a few roles that you can play in this in this challenge. It can be either a project leader, which is someone who is basically submitting their project for the challenge and hoping to get um, some kind of support, whether it's through funding or improving their project. Um, you can also be a curator, which is basically a subject matter expert. So someone that will be collaborating with the project leaders to provide feedback and kind of really tailor their projects to be the best project that it can be. And there's also supporters. So people who are um, investors, it might be people like philanthropists, funding organisations, or people just looking to support these impactful projects that come out of that process of the project leaders working with the curators to create this really great list of innovative new projects. Well, that, that's throwing the net very wide. I hope you pull in some good fish from that. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, before you launch this challenge, which I think is launching today, um, but what, what did the World Wildlife Fund listening project turn up? You know, you went around listening. Who, who did you listen to and what sort of things came up? Were there any surprises? Yeah, so we spent um, two months earlier this year on that national listening campaign and that was really to listen to and understand the needs and the values and the visions of communities, both on the front lines, but especially Indigenous leaders and communities. And what we heard kind of resulted in us co-designing these challenges with communities. And we're hoping that many of the solutions that come through this challenge will benefit communities and, you know, will help support local economies and help to restore, you know, social capitals in these communities that have been so badly affected by, you know, fires and COVID. And, that's kind of what we're hoping the natural progression of that listening campaign was. In terms of what we heard, you know, there was quite a general message of people had really experienced a trauma with this bushfire season, mourning the loss of the bush, mourning the loss of, you know, their properties and, you know, particularly Indigenous communities have felt the blow of this season, I think, pretty strongly. But one thing that really struck me that came out of the listening campaign was people all collectively or the vast majority of people mentioning they're wanting to return back to simpler times and return back to nature. And it's really interesting because in this climate that we're in and normally we're wanting to go, go, go and, you know, get more advanced, get more money, get more, you know, it mm. was in that rat race a little bit, it was actually quite amazing and really struck me very powerfully that, the overarching message was that people want to return to nature. People want to return to being more connected to nature and simpler times. And I think that's really realised off the back of the bushfire season and COVID where we've really had time to reflect and really sit with ourselves and, and sit with, unfortunately, a bit of the loss that we've experienced. Yeah. Something about ecology. Before I was speaking to you, I just looked up what the definition of it is, and it seems to be a lot about relationships between 
things, including people. And so you got into ecology and you're an expert in threatened species and adaptation. Tell us a little bit about that, the relationship that you feel and what got you into it. What's your ground story, you know, your origin story for this? (laughs) I guess for me, you know, I've grown up in the Dandenong Ranges. I was, you know, born at home in, in Fernie Creek and I've always been part of the bush and I've always really viewed myself as as part of the bush and the forest has always been just out the back door for me. And so it's it's something that from a really young age, I've really felt is a part of me as a person and is a part of us more collectively as, you know, humanity basically. And so, you know, growing up, I always valued it and always really wanted to find ways to protect it. And that's what I think led me to this position um, from a, you know, threatened species and climate adaptation perspective. I really think that climate change is, is going to be the biggest issue that we're facing. And it's great to see some action, but I think we're still not quite there yet in terms of really tackling it proactively. And so what I would really love to do in this role and, and what I'm hoping to do, you know, in my career is, find ways that we can still keep our threatened species around and and help them to adapt to this changing intense climate. And I think by doing that, we're really saving, you know, a part of ourselves because like I said, you know, I think if you're really connected, you really view, you know, beautiful wildlife and, and, you know, flora and fauna as not an abstract concept, but a part of our communities and a part of our identity and a part of ourselves. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I think a lot of people don't really feel that, especially city people. And I've been a city people all my life. And when I speak to those Aboriginal people who are working on the land like that, they feel that too. They feel that total relationship and ecology. Maybe it's restoring the ecology of people feeling connected to the land. Maybe it's that relationship that needs the most work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're probably not going to prioritise restoring something or saving something if we don't feel connected to it and you know that was part of the listening campaign and that was part of something that came out of that was that a lot of people do feel connected or there's at least a want for that connection and so I think we need to explore that and we need to find ways to build on really inspiring people to get back into nature or find new ways to connect with nature and value what we have left so that we can bring a lot back and restore a lot, but also protect what we still have. Building on those connections will be key, I think. Well, I hope when this challenge is open on the 26th of October, I think it's only open for about a month, and I hope when you get the results of that and start on some of those projects, you'll come back and talk to us about... Absolutely. I'd be happy to. I'm very excited about the challenge. I think for the first time in a long time, especially off the back of bushfires and covid this challenge has been something and, you know, our overarching Regenerate Australia vision is something that for the first time in a long time, I actually feel really hopeful as an ecologist. So I'm very excited. Just to finish, the, the, the other aspect that did occur to me is coordinating it. I mean, there's lots of people in this field, I think, dotted all over the landscape doing little things or biggish things like that one with wires and land care australia how are you going to coordinate it you don't want to be duplicating or competing do you 
No, I mean, we definitely don't want to be reinventing the wheel, um, but that's part of the whole process is bringing together all of those subject matter experts and kind of bringing yeah. together the high level thinkers, the innovative thinkers that are going to hopefully, you know, know what's already been happening and, and new approaches and really working cohesively and collectively. And we've got kind of tech things like we're running this challenge on our Impactio platform. Um, which basically brings together those subject experts and funders to collaborate. And it makes those high impact projects come together a lot more collaboratively and transparently so that we can see, you know, where exactly we need to inject funds into and how we can kind of dial certain projects up to make them the best version they can possibly be. Excellent. Thank you very much, Keita. We've been talking to Dr. Keita Ashman from World Wildlife Fund, for nature and their project that they're launching today is called bushfire regeneration challenge and you can look it up on their website or tell us again the impactio it's impactio.global forward slash challenge fantastic all right thank you keita thank thanks you. vivian i'm jenny gray i'm the chief executive officer at zoos victoria and in 2009, we became involved with a, a rescue mission to try and save the Christmas Island pipistrel. It's a small insectivorous bat that is under threat from crazy yellow ants, which is an introduced um, carnivorous ant species. And we sent a team up there in 2009 to try and save the species. Uh, it was a, a three zoos were involved, Perth Zoo, Taronga Zoo and ourselves at Zoos Victoria. The team on the ground put up measuring devices across the known habitat and they measured one bat. And so what we thought was a rescue mission, we realized we actually had arrived in time to record an extinction event. After six days, we didn't hear the bat flying again. And so this really sad moment, and, and I carry around the recording of the last bat on the last night, which is the sound I'm gonna play now. a little pipistrel bat where was it a christmas island pipistrel so on christmas island do you have a message for our listeners maybe some young listeners listening they think oh that's pretty dreadful really we're watching extinction all around what's your attitude to it we believe that we can stop extinction that if we stand together and say that animals are valuable that we can make a difference and i believe that every single one of you out there can make a difference if you go onto websites or you visit your local zoo and you ask what you can do to help, every day I'm impressed by what kids do. Whether they run a fundraiser, there's a boy who sings with his dog and has brought in money to save um, reptiles. There's other children doing things like writing petitions and going to see their local politicians. And here's an amazing idea, you know you can actually get to see your local politician. If you phone and, and ask for an appointment and ask them to make a decision that protects some of your local animals, whether they're bilbies or kangaroos or koalas, they will listen to you. So don't get disheartened. You know, the world gets saved by lots of people doing lots of small actions. So never discount your actions. Unlike other years, this, this is a year where we really need to pull together to kind of help to recover the bush. My name is Kay Winnigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hi Kay, hi listeners. Today we're talking to Chris Arnott 
Chris, given that your background is in land and water management, do you see gaps in BZE's approach so far or our society's approach to climate change that can be redressed by thinking about agriculture and land management? I guess compared with the energy piece now, it seems we have all the information we need to do that. It's just a matter of how and how quickly we go about it. But in terms of land management and agriculture, it seems like there's still gaps in our understanding. So is, is that something that's on your mind? It is. And I think there's a really important lesson in our own name, you know, which is obviously so clear about the outcome that we're seeking. A lot of the policy work that I've done, it's often the, the important challenge in that is to actually define what outcome are we really shooting for here? So the, the specificity, if you like, of a zero emissions sector or a zero emissions economy provides a fantastic amount of focus. I think we need to be bold around the time frame that we do that in, and there's plenty of evidence about getting that done much sooner than later. It's exciting to see all of the states and territories now signed on to a 2050 timeline. I think we can get it done sooner given some of the consumer shifts, some of the technology shifts, and some of the, the level of investment that's going into the space. But yeah, I think that important focus around what is the actual outcome that we're seeking to achieve here is like land and water is everything. If you're clear about that and then you can bring the range of stakeholders along with that, then the rest of it falls into place much more easily. Chris, BZE, with its plans to date that I've been involved with, has engaged with landowners, unions, local community groups, as well as industry in order to get support for its plans. I'd imagine in the land and water area, a similar thing would have to occur, That, but you'd probably be able to identify different groups like farmers, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. And I think any good transition requires that starting point, Kay. You know, we're understanding who are all those stakeholders, what's their involvement, yeah, I guess running a process that is infused with good data and good science, I think has always been something that I've always sought to do. And being transparent with those communities, those stakeholders about where these systems are transitioning. If you look at something like the Murray-Dying Basin, those local farmers, those local um, regionally based communities they see this stuff day in, day out. And they also know that if you roll into town and you're not using good data or telling the truth, that they, they can spot it a mile away. Chris, this is probably a good point to have a look at your past experience. So you mentioned the Murray-Darling Basin. Would you like to give listeners a little bit of an idea of your background with that? Yeah, sure. Look, as I said, uh, I've had a background in the environment sector. I studied science many moons ago and actually did my honours research on the Murray, looking at the, the way the river is managed and the water releases out of Hume Dam up near Albury Wodonga there. I then went into a lot of work around catchment management and land, land restoration and then transitioned into the water space more specifically. And a lot of that work has sort of spanned the sort of small farm project scale right up to things as big as Murray-Darling Basin. I've also been fortunate to, to do a little bit of work internationally. I've worked on water issues in Iran and in Jordan. I've always enjoyed a, a, quite a, a broad spectrum of technical work in that space. And you also have some entrepreneurial strings to your bow, don't you? Which I, I think that's an important thing for BZE supporters to be aware of in terms of the skills that you're bringing to the role. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Sure. So about 25 years into my career now, and, and the first half of that was with mainly engineering firms that, that do that work in the, in the environment space. And then back in 2006, saw an opportunity with a few others to jump out and start my first firm, which is called Alluvium, still going, did a lot of advisory work in that water and, in, and landscape management space. We built that up over a number of years, and then I, I left in about mid-2011 and then started another firm with a couple of business partners in early 2012 called Aether, and we really specialised in the water policy advisory space and also doing advisory work around the Australian water market. So both on the policy side, as well as for people that were developing water trading strategies or buying and selling water on the market. And what was your ethos around establishing Aether? What were you setting out to achieve with that? Well, really what I've always sought to do, whether it's actually even been in the teams that I've led in in other firms or in, in my own firms, has been just to do really good work. There's a huge opportunity and when you've done it a, a couple of times and been successful, there's often a sense that there's some sort of magic to it. But really all we ever did was to be really clear about what it was that we were doing. I think that's an important lesson I've, I've learned over the years and I'll bring into this role with BZE is to be really tightly focused about what it is that we're seeking to do and then to build a great culture. These things always take teams. There's a lot of hard work that goes between all of that. There is certainly at the heart of it ensuring that the stuff that we do is technically sound and well received. And that's a really exciting aspect to, to stepping into the role here is that there is such an incredible body of technical work that we can leverage. And I think one of the things I've thought about and, and talked with a few of the team early on is how we take that body of work and get greater awareness. Can we repackage it? Can we use it in different ways to speak to different audiences? I think there's a big opportunity for us without creating a huge volume of work that things like the stationary energy plan or million jobs requires. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to the new CEO of BZE, Chris Arnott. I think BZE had already started down that path in terms of trying to provide a summary of each of the reports, but hopefully you're looking at other opportunities, maybe on an educational front or I'm not sure, video or YouTube sessions, it all sounds pretty exciting, the, the possibilities. Absolutely. And I'm no expert in this space, Kay, in that, but we've all over the last, what is it now, nearly six months or so, become very familiar with all these different forms of meeting and connecting. And so space itself is evolving. I think the technology and the, and the ways in which we can communicate is constantly evolving and, and evolving quite rapidly. And it's uh, incumbent on us to think about how we're communicating, but also who we're communicating to. I think that's a piece I would like to understand more deeply is who is aware of us and who needs to be aware of us in order to get this wholesale change that we're all um, pushing for. BZD has been recognised internationally and won quite a number of awards. Do you see that it's well recognised within Australia as well as it is overseas? It's a, a really good question, Kay. I'm not well placed to answer it with data. I think I'd like to understand how well we are you know, sort of recognised and, and the, the work that's being done. I think certainly things like the sort of press that we were able to attract through the launch of the Million Jobs Plan and seizing the opportunity that was presented there and, and full credit to ATAR and our chair and, and the team that brought that together in an incredibly short period of time. 
But if you look at those sorts of opportunities, I would be surprised if that wasn't, particularly when you look at things like Sky News and coverage in the Australian and so forth, they will will be getting us into audiences that I would expect would not be our traditional audiences from the early days. Speaking about the communications piece, what role do you see the radio programs playing in BZE going forward? Oh, I think they're an absolutely vital part of getting our message out there. Firstly, that pure awareness piece around who is BZE and, and the sorts of things that we're talking about. But as you'll, I'm sure, enjoy, you know, the the rise of the podcast has shown that radio and voice is such an incredible medium for communicating. It hasn't all become visual. It's such a transportable medium, whether you're driving or you're walking the dog or doing some housework. I think the radio and the voice aspects of what you produce can play a big part in communicating what we're up to and the sort of progress that we're making. Chris, going back to your past professional life, moving from natural resource management to BZE is somewhat of a departure from your previous trajectory. What's prompted that for you? Look, I think there's this absolute need for us to get this done and to get it done in this decade. And I'd love to play a role in ensuring that that happens. And I think my skills and experience can be brought to bear on a range of fronts. And I guess the other aspect is I'll have a challenge and it's definitely a new challenge. I've often put myself into slightly uncomfortable situations to sort of see if I can rise to that challenge. So there's a lot to learn, a lot to get across, a lot of new entities and acronyms, but I think it'll get done as a result of the great team that we've got. And that's, as I was saying earlier, that's that's all I've ever done is really make sure that we're really clear about what we're trying to achieve as a team and get the sort of structure and supporting around that team to, to get the job done. So drawn to the, the energy and the optimism of BZE too, I think is, is really quite infectious. And that came out in many, many stories that were shared on the, the celebration of the stationary energy plan on Monday night. Chris, I've got another left field question for you. The two companies that you started, one of them was called Alluvium and the other one is called Aether. And I can understand the name Alluvium, but can you explain where the word Aether comes from? Yes, in part in these days of starting businesses, it's part trying to find a good name and part what's available as a domain name. Okay, so it's one of the early elements of the Greek gods and that came from that genesis and it was available so and it was nice and short and a couple of names with company names that started with a i don't know whether you can read much into that i'm now in an organization that starts with p (laughs) moving through the alphabet (laughs) yes (laughs) well i love the ethos because not only do you think about the company names but you also think about the company structure and rather than focusing on profits you focus on individuals you focus on achievements and technical expertise and customer feedback and so forth and also profit sharing I understand in one of the companies. Yeah I think one of the things that we did in the relatively early days of APA was to pursue the B Corp certification which is I'm not sure if you're aware of that as a certification but it's a, a global movement that provides the ability a little like fair trade coffee and the, the branding that that gives you to operate at the business level and to say across a whole range of areas where you're assessed by this third party that you are doing things for people 
for planet and for profit. So we were a for-profit company. And I think I've always sort of seen that division of for-profit and not-for-profit as a bit of a false framing, to be honest. We are a non-profit BZD, but we've, we've got to look at that carefully. You know, we might have to ensure that we've got the, you know, the revenue there to deliver on the work that we're seeking to do. So that's always been an area of strength for me. I love, I love spreadsheets, if you can uh, believe that. But I think my framing has always been that let's be wildly successful and that way we can do more of the work that we need to do and we can pay our, pay our team well, can have the sorts of support around them that makes their jobs easier and in the external environment we can get more of that, that transition happening that we want to get done. That sounds wonderful and exciting and good to see you've got so much experience in that area. In terms of political lobbying, what can you bring to BZD in that area? Look, I wouldn't consider the things that I've done in the past as lobbying. I guess what what I've always done is a little like my earlier comment about doing the good technical work. And I think the reason that we're getting the traction that we are in the discussions that we're having, and that includes big corporates and with the politicians, is because our work is technically sound, it's non-partisan, and it's providing a positive pathway through this crisis that we're in. You know, I think if you put those things in front of politicians and you pair with it in many instances, the really good foundational work that our teams have been able to do around the local communities... The decision is an easy one often for them. There are inevitable transitions that they know need to happen. And I guess the work that we're doing is trying to make, provide them with those positive pathways to transition. How do you actually get the information in front of the politicians? In succinct ways, Kay, yes. (laughs) So that's often the biggest challenge to take all of that detailed technical work and to boil it down into the things that are front and centre for them. So that's obviously in in this environment, even under normal circumstances, things like jobs, things like benefit to the economy and dealing with some of the the issues that they know they have to deal with as as certain industries start to struggle with these long-run transitions. So we're right in the thick of that at the moment. The team's working hard on taking all of that long list and detailed project information and synthesising it down so that it literally is, in many instances, a one page per, per project or per region, because really you don't get along with these individuals and you've got to make sure that the key points are, are really jumping off the page for them. Chris, BZD is a small organisation with lots of work to do. Climate change work is very urgent and can consume 24 hours a day. What do you do to relax? I think that's spot on, Kay. We're doing really important work and the team works incredibly hard, but we've also got to make sure that we care for ourselves and for each other. And so that's right up there for me, part of this role, and to make sure that we're here for the long haul. And so I guess at a personal level, I have two young girls. They're in their early high school years at the moment, remote schooling, like so many of us, or all of us are now in Victoria. So spending time with family, I am a big bike rider but also just spending time in nature. So we get the opportunity to get away. It's usually things like doing bushwalks and so forth and just being out in nature and seeing the horizon is pretty rejuvenating for me. That's wonderful because I've just been so thrilled to hear so many people during this lockdown period say that they're starting to appreciate nature much more. They have the time just to sit back and smell the plants and watch the birds and just enjoy nature for its sake. 
the, the local dog park is it's busier than I've ever seen it. So it's nice to see people out there throwing frisbees, walking dogs, being out and about. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for your time and explaining to our listeners what your history is and what your vision is for BZE so far. And we look forward to you talking to us again in six or 12 months' time and seeing where BZE sits. Thanks, Kay. Thanks, Natalie. And love the opportunity to come back and share with you and your listeners the progress that we're making and also take this opportunity to thank you both for the work that you do in getting our message and the stories out there. Really fantastic. Thanks, Chris. How? I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Uh, our next speaker is Nikki Eisen. Nikki is currently the Energy Transition Manager at World Wildlife Fund Australia. We hear a lot about Australia's renewable advantage and it is real. We have some of the best solar and wind resources in the world and we have abundant land and we can use that, um, but only if we act soon. Um, so we at WWF are running a campaign. Um, my, my job is to help accelerate Australia to become the world's leading renewable export nation by 2030. That's fun and exciting and just a small task and um, we're pleased to be working with BZE and many other organisations on that mission. Uh, but we talk about six different types of renewable exports. Renewable hydrogen, I've just mentioned, direct electricity transfer, like the Sun Cable project, solar power products or renewable powered products, which is really the embodied renewables in steel, alumina, aluminium, uh, you know, other metals and advanced manufacturing. Australian expertise, components and the recycling of components for making clean energy technologies, and then software and services. Now for about four of these renewable export types, hydrogen um, products, expertise and, uh, and components and recyclings, it makes sense to geographically co-locate them in a place where you can actually have access to an export port. Um, so you know, let's use our existing heavy industry hubs and transform them into renewable export hubs. We talk a lot, um, you know, I, I mentioned before that 100% renewables is not enough. We're talking about going to 700% renewables and the renewable energy industri industrial precinct would, would help us get there. Um, it would also help us capture the huge opportunity that we have in processing critical minerals. We have so many of the minerals that we need uh, to both create renewable uh, commodities such as batteries, but also we have some of the, you know, we are one of the largest, ex if not the uh, largest exporter of iron ore, which accounts for, what, 6-7% of global emissions, so helping to decarbonise uh, steel manufacturing. Uh, steelmaking is a huge economic opportunity for Australia. So I've talked a little bit around what a renewable energy industrial precinct is, but what really does make it up? The first is we, it needs to have a guaranteed reliable supply of renewables at a low price. That then needs to be backed up by uh, local storage and flexible demand programs, really interested in um, some of the work that is being done looking at aluminium smeltings and the uh, and the use of potline technologies to turn aluminium smelters into massive batteries, um, you know, where they can ramp up and down by 20%, give or take. Uh, and that could be, you know, a huge 
um, stabilizing force for these precincts and for the grid more broadly. Um, you'll need critical infrastructure, transmission connection, hydrogen production pipelines, and probably a shared industrial heating network. Water, waste and recycling facilities. This is an opportunity to establish an industrial ecology. So looking at what the waste streams are from one manufacturing zone uh, type that can be used as a feedstock for the next and look at ways that we can create more of a circular economy. And then of course, you'll need con connections to port rail and road logistics and places like Newcastle are just perfect for that. Deepwater port, good rail infrastructure, you know, the Hunter Valley's one of their largest industries actually is a road logistics industry. Uh, then, of course, skilled labour and training programs are going to be needed in each of these precinct areas to really make sure that, the, you know, there are the people there who are able to um, do that job of, of um, working, cleaning up our existing uh, heavy industry and then innovating and creating these new technologies that uh, and implementing these technologies at scale, as Simon Curry mentioned. Will, as Simon mentioned, need streamlined planning and approvals processes, and there will need to be some degree of financial incentive, at least for the infrastructure required. And one of the great things is we can get on with creating this infrastructure now because there are already some anchor customers starting to emerge. Where might they be? Well, we, Michael and I, you know, put our heads together and came up with this list, but I thought I would share a map of, you know, the different types of renewable exports that we're starting to see around the country. But certainly wherever there's a, a deep water um, port and a, a heavy industry base already, um, Gladstone, uh, Newcastle, Port Kembla, we've been doing quite a bit of work down in Tasmania and looking at the opportunity of Bell Bay. Uh, Bell Bay, you could argue, is almost already a renewable industrial precinct and it's about how do you then um, uh, make it one for the 21st century, not just the 20th century. Then, of course, over in Kwinana in Western Australia, there's a huge amount of work going on and the Western Australian government, I would say, is, is doing some of the most interesting strategic work in attracting clean energy industries to that, to that part of the world. Uh, and then there's some opportunities further north and then or obviously in South Australia and it'll be interesting to see what um, Sanjeev Gupta does with, with Mayala. Um, I think one of the things that we are focusing on at WWF is the need to grow markets for the products created in renewable energy industrial precincts. If we can demonstrate that there is a demand for green steel, for green ammonia, for green hydrogen um, and other renewable power products, um, then it is easier to justify um, you know, the investment in the, the infrastructure and the upgrades to, to plant um, required. So you know, we're doing some work through the Business Renewable Centre. My colleague Monica Richter is leading some work around creating a, bar, a buyer's group for decarbonised materials in the construction industry. Um, and then I, I've been doing some work looking at how do we create some demand, early demand for renewable hydrogen. I'll finish up by saying this is just part of a, a broader program, but we're really excited to be working with the BZE around this, both in the Hunter um, on the Renewable Energy Industrial Precincts idea and, you know, more broadly because I want to acknowledge that BZE was really the first organisation out there saying that Australia could become a renewable export powerhouse with its renewable superpower report. So um, thanks, Michael, and to the team, and thanks for having me today. Um, so we have a range of questions, and the question is, do you see private investment playing a role in building improvements or will this have to be government funded? 
public funding is important, but it doesn't fund the bulk of this. The bulk of it comes from private sector investment. So uh, to choose an example uh, from our report, we talk about building 90 gigawatts of renewable energy in the next five years. Um, that's a hell of a lot, but there is a, last time I looked, 160 gigawatts of renewable energy already in the planning stage and about a quarter of that has planning permission. So all of that is pr the private sector one willing to build uh, and pay for wind, solar and batteries. So Simon represents one of those companies, uh, Energy Estate. Simon isn't asking for uh, public funding to build solar and wind farms. Um, private sector funding is willing to do it. There are sectors where we will need some public funding to get things going. Um, off the top of my head, uh, we talk about cycling infrastructure. So cycling infrastructure pays back enormously, um, but it does need public funding to get it going. But in general, um, the role for governments is to uh, create the setting and the environment. So uh, uh, private investors have the confidence. I agree. I, I think there's huge, you know, there's no shortage of money in the private sector willing to invest in this. What there might be is a shortage of a business case. And so that's where the, the mandates that Simon was talking about, the demand and market creation that I, I was talking about is absolutely essential. But I will say that other governments around the world are pouring big amounts of cash into this. And so, you know, if we do want to be seen as an attractive place for global investment, but not just financial investment, but companies looking for places to locate in, you know, in de-risked, um, you know, future-proofed um, zero-carbon environments, then, you know, Australia is lagging behind other countries such as the, you know, EU Germany, France, UK and South Korea, and South Korea being one of our critical trading partners. Um, in fact, I can give you a sneak peek of some analysis that we're going to release tomorrow, which is if you look at our federal stimulus, our clean stimulus announced over the last month or so, we would say there's about $99 per person in Australia committed, um, whereas if you look at the UK, it's about $500 per person committed in clean stimulus. So you know, we are lagging behind. And and Nikki, given given your job to make Australia the, the the renewable energy powerhouse of the world, you probably look with envy on something like the German stimulus, where I think what did they put? Was it ten billion euros just into clean hydrogen? Yeah, I think it was nine billion. But exactly, mm. you know, they're they're really you know seeing the future and unlocking it. And mm. I have to say, I'm feeling optimistic. It doesn't feel like we're not seeing the future here in Australia. It's about whether we can start to match the scale. And you know, I I agree with Simon and you, yourself, Michael. It doesn't have to be all in terms of funding. It can be out through other programs and policies as well. But to be honest, I think funding is easier for the governments we have at the moment than, than um, some of the policies we might need. Now, here's Simon Curry from Energy Estate. His vision of the notorious Abbott Point port facility turning into an exporter of low-carbon products is delicious. Uh, Abbott Point, uh, which everyone will find the um, symmetry of having a renewable uh, in energy precinct at Abbott Point. I'm sure we'll all find that quite delightful. Uh, there is the land sitting there and um, out in the Bowen estate, uh, which was reserved for industry. 
uh, not just um, as a um, sheltering for place for coal. Uh, so I'm, I'm very enthused around what's going on at Gladstone. In a New South Wales context, uh, Minister Keane uh, and his department have been very supportive, uh, but also the regional growth team and what they've done with special activation precincts. Um, uh, and again, looking, we're spending billions of dollars on inland rail. If we're going to put this inland rail in, which we're doing, what we want to do is use that in, in parks, in Wagga, in Moree, and to effectively facilitate manufacturing being brought into those new precincts. Uh, in terms of manufacturing, we need those precincts um, and we need the, the hubs. Uh, when, you, when you look overseas and you look at some of the most successful manufacturing precincts. Uh, you, you look around places like Finland, um, you look around places like Japan, uh, some of the parts of Germany, they are ecosystems where heat is shared, where infrastructure is shared, where you have those joint training programs. Uh, and I think, you know, this, you know, I've been very encouraged the last few weeks. Um, this has been a major shift to me for this government in terms of how quickly it's gone, okay, we do need to pivot. Uh, and the work that BZDE did, and I, I didn't actually expect, and Michael probably second this, that there'd necessarily be so much support for the concepts that BZDE has been putting in front of the PMO and others. And I think that's really encouraging. Uh, but we do need something like the mandates. We need that kick-starting to get people across. Excellent. Thank you, Simon. Uh, the next question is... Anonymous, it's for Nikki Eisen. It says, given food processing is a big industry, high cost to relocate and a big employer in Oz and located in cities and regions, how do we get hydrogen to these factories for high grade heating to displace gas? So I just uh, actually typed a bit of a response to that one, but I, I think um, perhaps Michael can weigh in a bit as well um, based on the electrifying industry report that the BZE did and Michael led. But, you know, our, like if I go back to that um, graph of the, uh, gas use, if you look at um, the gas use in the, in the food processing industry, it's mostly low temperature gas uh, heat that it's used for. Um, less than 150 degrees and a little bit higher than that. Um, there are really good existing technologies like industrial heat pumps that can electrify heating processes now in ways that will, uh, you know, pay for themselves within, a, you know, within a year to three years. Is this the analysis we're seeing out of some feasibility studies um, run by the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity? So really, you know, hydrogen should be thought of as for those places and processes that you can't easily electrify. And food processing is a sector that we should be really targeting for electrification. Um, and in fact, that's a focus of one of our stimulus measures at WWF, this idea of modernizing manufacturing through electrification and, um, and energy efficiency measures. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
I'm very grateful to Dr. Keita Ashman and Nikki Eisen from World Wildlife Fund. Thank you also to Michael Lord and Chris Arnott from Beyond Zero Emissions and Kay Wendigal and Natalie Bucknell from the Friday Radio Show who interviewed Chris. You can find their podcasts at 3cr.org. Thanks also to Simon Curry, the discussion group audio where you can hear his full talk will be linked to the show notes. Thanks for production help to Andy Britt, Imogen Butler and Mark Spencer. It's a great pleasure to know you're there and so willing to help. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. World Wildlife Fund Australia has launched a bushfire regeneration challenge. The challenge will deploy $1 million into innovative solutions to safeguard and restore landscapes in key fire-affected areas. We're looking for both proof of concepts and innovative solutions that are ready for scaling, that have the potential to push boundaries and achieve a brighter future for people and nature. Head to impactio.global forward slash challenges to find out more.